morning to our text, Hebrews chapter 5. And we're studying verses 1 to 10. It's on page 1186. Any children here? Kindergarten to second grade can be dismissed to Children's Church if they wish to go. Through the door over here by the piano. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Let me start by reading the text. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So, Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the One who could save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverent submission. Although He was a son, He learned obedience from what He suffered and once made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey Him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray now that You would take the temporary things of this world that seem so important to us and show us, God, how light and momentary they really are. And Lord, take the eternal great things of Your Word that seem so far off and distant to us and show us how great and weighty they really are. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. We are often uh, oblivious to our deepest needs. We often are focused on the, the surfacey things of life, you know, the foam and the fizz of life, the things that we think are so pressing and important like I really need a new cell phone and uh, I've got to get home in time for the Patriots and uh, you know my car is broken. And these are the things we tend to focus on. And we're either ignorant of, or I think a lot of times just in denial of, the deeper needs that we have. We don't want to think about those more pressing issues. Uh, for instance, uh, it's very possible that right now, some of us in this room right now, are in need, have a deep need of a good cardiologist. We just don't recognize it yet. Uh, There are some of us in the room right now, perhaps, in this economy, who are in need of a good headhunter and a good job placement service. We just haven't come to recognize it yet, but we may soon. Uh, Some of us in school still uh, really have need of some new friends. Because the friends we currently have, we don't realize it, but they have already begun a trajectory toward substance abuse and promiscuity and maybe even crime. And and we don't see that yet because we're still like on the surface. Yeah, I have friends. Yay. 
but we haven't thought about where those friends are taking us. Uh, I, I, a couple of years ago, I came to realize I had a, a deeper need at, sort of as a homeowner. Um, we had some guys put an addition on our house. When our fourth child came, we, we needed one more bedroom. So we, we built this addition. It was great. It, went, it was just a bedroom over our garage. And what was great about it was they could kind of do the work out there out there and didn't have to come into our house and so we didn't have to move out or anything and once it was all enclosed and sort of ready for the finished work they just cut a hole through a wall between the existing house and the addition but the thing that was interesting was when they took the drywall down to go through the the plywood on the side of the house right there exactly where the hole was to be cut was an enormous carpenter ant nest and it was just like you know, I mean, it was great to see all these big, huge construction workers like with heebie-jeebies. They were just, like, ah. <laughs> just ants everywhere, ants. And they're stomping and they're spraying and they're like, oh. And, uh, and then I, I had to face the fact that I needed a good exterminator, uh, which I didn't want to face when you're a homeowner. You don't want to think about termites. You don't want to think about carpenter ants. That happens to other people, you know, not to you. But, but uh, that's what we had. So now I have an exterminator who comes once a year and sprays the the stuff, the magic stuff that kills the bugs or whatever around the house. Well, Hebrews, in a similar vein, wants to tell us that we have a great need that we probably don't think about, we probably don't want to think about. It's not just a great need. Uh, I believe it's the greatest need. We need someone, and this someone is more important than, than oncologists and cardiologists. We need this person more than a a good headhunter or a good lawyer or a good therapist, more than a Christian spouse. We really need this person more than we even realize. And according to Hebrews, the person that we need most, more than anything else in our life, is a great high priest. And maybe you're like, okay, you just lost me. You know what? A high priest? Aren't you the priest? No. I'm a pastor. <laughs> Big difference. We need a great high priest. And that's what Hebrews is all about. Uh, from chapter 4 till about chapter 10. So for the next several chapters, we're going to be looking at this theme of a great high priest that we need. And in fact, it was introduced last Sunday. If you were here for last Sunday's sermon when we had our guest preacher, Dr. Mark Shaw, he really introduced the theme in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. And in fact, really chapter 5, verses 1 to 10 that we're studying this morning is kind of like part 2 of the same message, part two of the same ideas. So you'll hear a lot of the same themes kind of continued on in chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. But we need a great high priest. Just as in Israel, they had a high priest who was in charge of the temple and the worship. So we still need a high priest today. Let, let me try to make the case as to why this is true, why we need a high priest, why this doesn't just sound bizarre and arcane. So look at uh, verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 5. Look at the first four verses again. It says, every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon Himself the glory of becoming the high priest. Now notice uh, here in these first four verses, uh, three characteristics of a high priest. Three things that marked the job and the duties of the high priest. And I think it will show why we need a high priest. Uh, first of all, you'll see that the high priest stood in solidarity with the people that he represented. 
The high priest was from among the people. Okay, so look at verse 1 again. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God. Uh, He's one of us. This is not some person who's from the outside. This is not some special consultant who's come in. The high priest has come from among the ranks of the people. The high priest understands our needs. He's, He's one of us. He can relate to us. Uh, he relates to us in terms of our own sin, struggles against sin. Look at verse 2. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. So the high priest represents us and comes from among us. Uh, just like perhaps we'd send someone to represent us in the House of Representatives and they would speak on behalf of our, our area or our town or district or whatever. So, so in a sense, the high priest we've sent over to God to represent us in matters related to God. Uh, now notice the second half of it though. The high priest not only represents the people to God, the high priest also represents God to the people. So again, look at verse 1. Every high priest is selected from among men and appointed to represent them in what? Matters related to God. Now who does the selecting and the appointing? God. Look down at verse 4. No one takes this honor upon himself. You, you, don't, you don't go to school to become a high priest. You don't say, like, you know, what do you want to do when I grow up? I think I can, I think I can do the high priest thing. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, that would work for me. I, I think I have what it takes. No, no, no. You, you don't take this honor upon yourself. You have to be appointed by God just as Aaron was. You know, Aaron was the brother of Moses, the first high priest of Israel. And how did Aaron get to be the high priest? Because God said, you're going to be the high priest. So... Okay, (laughs) that's how it works. So the person is not only a representative of the people, but the person also represents and is appointed by God. Uh, So in a sense then, the priest, it it kind of connects two worlds. He connects earth and heaven. He's a go-between between the people and God. Um, You know, if you think about the Old Testament, the, the priest had certain garments that he had to wear. It's interesting, in, read the Old Testament, there's these chapters devoted to describing how to make the high priest's garments. Like, I didn't know God was a fashion designer, but apparently God is. God had a design. But there's a reason for the design. Because when you look at the high priest's garments, really interesting in the Old Testament, it's that his garments reflected this dual role of representing the people and representing God. So for the people side of the equation, it's interesting, he had like a little breastplate. It was called an ephod that he would wear. And on the ephod were... Remember? Twelve stones. And on each stone was written a word. They were the twelve, the names of the twelve tribes of Israel on each stone. And, and on his shoulders, he also, God said, make two stone things on his shoulders. And they kind of like, I guess, attached the whole thing together so that it hung together. But these two stones were inscribed with words. Six of the names of the tribes of Israel were on one shoulder, six on the other. So that when the high priest went into the temple of God to do his duties, he was in a sense carrying the people with him, representing them so that God would, in a sense, look upon and remember his people, you know, in a symbolic kind of way. But the high priest's clothing also symbolized the pe- God's relationship to the people. He was also God's representative to them. You know, it's interesting, again, in the, the clothing that the high priest had to wear, there's this talk about the kind of yarn you had to use to make his garments. It had to be scarlet, yellow, purple. And it's like, what is God with all these colors, you know? Is he something like a colorologist? Like, what is this all about? There's a reason for that fabric. It's the same colored fabric as was used 
in the curtains that went around the temple. The same color. So the, the, the tabernacle in the wilderness, which was kind of like an earthly representation of God's heavenly court. It's sort of like an earthly picture of heaven on earth. The same fabric in the curtains was the same fabric that the high priest wore. He matched. Why? Because God wants to be color coordinated? No. He's trying to say, this is my man who represents me. The high priest also had a, like a plaque he wore on his head. It was kind of like a bandana that went around his turban. And on the plaque it said, holy to the Lord. So he'd been separated for the, the work of God too. So even in the clothing this high priest wore, he was both the representative of the people to God, but also the representative of heaven back to earth. There was this kind of uh, bridging that took effect. Uh, th- think of the high priest as sort of an adapter. Have you ever traveled to, to Europe and you want to bring your hair dryer? You've got to bring those adapters. Right? Adapter is when you have one plug here and another plug there and they don't fit. And so you have to have something in between that bridges that. Or think of the high priest as a bridge. There's a great chasm with the people on the one side and a holy God on the other side. And the high priest has one foot firmly anchored in this world and one firmly anchored in heaven and is a bridge between the two to connect heaven and earth. And so the high priest has this kind of function of connecting the two. But notice the third thing about the high priest There's one more thing in this passage. That the high priest connected the people to God through a specific act, through a specific function. There was something particularly that the high priest did to connect them. And what was it? He offered sacrifices for sins. Look again at verse 1. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God. And here's how to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Or look at verse 3. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. See, the reason we need an adapter, the reason there is a great chasm that must be bridged is what the Bible talks about as sin. It's, It's our rebellion against God. That even though He made us, even though He loves us, even though we have this beautiful world out there with the snow that He created and our families and our lives, we, our hearts have turned away from God. We haven't followed Him. We haven't honored Him as He requires. And even when we do get religious, it's always kind of like on our terms, what works for us, instead of humbling ourselves before Him on His terms. And so we, we are people who have turned away from God. We are stubborn and, and hard-hearted toward God and His laws and His commandments. And so that's sin that separates us. And the problem is, when a holy God comes into the presence of a sinful and rebellious people, this is a problem for the people. They can't be together. You know, God, His his judgment comes upon a people. And so the high priest's role then is to, in a sense, offer sacrifices to take the penalty of sin on the sacrifice instead of the people. So when they, when they you know, killed the animal as a sacrifice, it was a symbolic way of saying the judgment that we deserve for our sins has been visited upon a substitute instead of upon us. Um, let me ask this. What was the little Bible trivia? What was the great annual day in Israel's history where uh, the high priest played a special and unique role? What was the name of that day? It was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. What happened on that day? The high priest brought the bull and the sacrificial animal there. He would put his heads on the hands on the head of the animal. 
and he would confess his sins. And then he would confess the sins of the priesthood. And then he would confess the sins of the people. And and in a sense, they were being put on the substitute sacrifice. So that when that bull was killed, it was such a visual, visceral reminder of the consequences of sin. Because God is a holy God. He, He judges sin. You know? I would much rather, much rather have cancer and face imminent terrorist attacks and be unemployed and bankrupt than have to stand before a holy God without a high priest. I mean, that would be like a vacation compared to having to face my maker without a high priest just with my life before him. I mean, it's terrifying. Do you know what hell is? Think about this. Here's a thought for you. Heaven and hell are, are places where God is present. The difference is, in heaven there's a high priest there. In hell there is not. And so God's presence is there blessing His people in heaven. He's there in hell as well, but there's no high priest to mediate. And so the holiness of God is poured out on people who've rejected and rebelled against Him. So we need a high priest desperately. This is why it's our deepest need, you know. It's more than needs of any other thing. Any other thing, they're important. You know, we need a cardiologist. We need a good therapist at times. We need different things. But these are temporal issues. What we're talking about here is our everlasting standing before our Creator. We need a high priest. Because we too, like the people then, are sinful people. I was thinking, reflecting on our, our sort of need of a high priest. I've been reading this biography recently it's by... Uh, it's on a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a famous British preacher. He was a Welshman, actually, and he preached in the 20th century in London, and a famous preacher. But before he was a preacher, he was a doctor. He was actually an MD, and not just any doctor. He was sort of on the fast track to become one of the elite doctors in all of London and all of England. He worked with a guy named uh, Lord Horder. He was you know, such a good doctor, he was a lord, right? And Lord Horder was connected to the elite aristocratic circles. You know, he was the guy when the, when the uh, uh, people of Parliament were sick, he would go and visit them. Or when the royal family was sick, Lord Horder would come and diagnose them. And, and Martin Lloyd-Jones became like his, his uh, assistant. So it was this interesting position that Lloyd-Jones was in. And what he discovered was, he discovered this reality of human sinfulness. He would work among the poor in London as a doctor, and he would see their vices and their moral failures and their bad habits and And, you know, the conventional wisdom of the time, and I think it's still conventional wisdom today, is that the reason the poor have all these moral failings and vices is because they're poor and uneducated. And if they just had money and better education, they would be fine. Because that's what really fixes a person is money and education. The problem is that Lloyd-Jones also worked among the circles of the elite, of the aristocracy, of those who had all the education, wealth, privilege, and power. And as he did his medical work among them, he saw that they also were riddled with vices and sins and moral failings and you know, character defects and things that were ruining their health. Their health was being hurt because of moral problems they had. And so he looked at that and he said, wait a minute, they're, they're the same as those people. And then the true realization came when he began to look at his own heart. And Lloyd-Jones says, wait a minute, I have the same problem. Even though he was a doctor out to help humanity, which is a good thing, he began to look in his own heart and saw that so much of what he did was motivated by pride and vanity and self-promotion and self-righteousness and ego. 
And he was like, wow, it's me too. And that's when he realized, to put it in the words of Hebrews, that he needed a high priest. He didn't just need more religion or more good works or more caring for people. I mean, you know, a doctor, just your whole life is caring for people. But he realized that it was done with so many improper motives and that at the center of his life was not the love and worship of God. It was not being motivated by a great rejoicing in his Creator and his Savior. And so he just found himself bankrupt. You know, when the crushing weight of God's holiness truly comes upon our minds, all of the little flimsy bomb shelters we've built for ourselves get smashed. You know, well, I'm a nice person, and I go to church, and at Thanksgiving I went to the soup kitchen, and good, but it cannot sustain the weight of God's demands upon us. And suddenly we find ourselves just splintered by His holiness. And we say, oh, I need a high priest. High priest is not just an adapter. The high priest is not just a bridge. Here's a third image. How about high priest as shock absorber? That as the weight of God's holiness comes against a sinful humanity, the high priest through his sacrifices, in a sense, kind of absorbs it like a, like a piston. He absorbs the force of, of, uh, of God's holiness and, and just saves the people so that the holy God can live among a sinful people through the high priest. And the great message of Hebrews, the whole point that we're going to be hearing for the next several weeks as we look at Hebrews, move through chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, is that God has provided the great high priest that our souls need, that we cannot provide for ourselves. And of course, that great high priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. As it says back in chapter 4, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And then, so then in Hebrews 5, verses 5 to 10, basically what we see is that Jesus fulfills the three characteristics of the high priest. That's really what's left. He stands in solidarity with sinful people. He represents and has been appointed by God. And then the third characteristic is he offers a sacrifice. So he does the high priest's role that we need. Let's look at each of those three. We'll start with the, the part about God because that's where the author goes. Look at verse 5. So Christ also did not take upon Himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to Him, You are My Son, today I have become Your Father. And He says in another place, You are a, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So... Jesus can be the high priest, number one, because God has appointed him. He didn't run for it. He didn't petition for it. God appointed Jesus to be our high priest. He has that number one qualification. And what he does is, you'll look here in verse 5, he, he, in verse 6, he does two quotations from the Old Testament. The first one is from Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have become your father. So that's from a royal messianic psalm in the Old Testament that uh, would be sung or read when the king of Israel was crowned king and at his coronation they would sing Psalm 2. And part of it was this language about God saying, you are my son. So the writer of Hebrews says, God has said that about Jesus. You are my son. And then in verse 6, you get a second quotation showing that God has appointed Jesus. And he says, it's for, this one's from Psalm 110. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And that's a really interesting passage. I would actually like us to turn there if we could. Put a bookmark here in Hebrews 4. 
Go back to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is just a fascinating text. It's on page uh, 603 if you're using a pew Bible. Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is an interesting psalm. Maybe you're not familiar with it. The early church was very familiar with it. It was one of their primary texts showing that Jesus was the Son of God. It was one of their primary proof texts. And Psalm 110, it's really fascinating because the psalm doesn't make a lot of sense in its original context. When you read Psalm 110 in the original Old Testament context, it's a very bizarre psalm that seems to not make sense. Like, how does it work? Uh, So, for instance, look at Psalm 110, verse 1. This is King David saying, The Lord, that's God, said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, who is he talking about? The Lord, King David says, The Lord said to my Lord. But you're the King David. I mean, who's your Lord in addition to the Lord God? It's like this third person in the equation. Like, where did that person come from? Who is that person? Who's David talking about? And look what he says. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Which is tantamount to saying, God saying, Sit on my throne with me, reign with me, and assume the divine prerogatives which in the Old Testament is like almost blasphemous. It's almost gobbledygook. Like, what? Nobody sits on God's throne with God. Who are you talking about? Who is this person? Or go down to verse 4. Here's our text. This is where Hebrews quotes from. Look at verse 4 of Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. Here's what He swears to this Lord. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now that's weird too because this Lord, this king who's sitting on God's throne, whoever that is, has now been called a priest. Again, doesn't make sense. In the Old Testament, priests were priests, kings were kings. Priests weren't kings, kings weren't priests. You know, the priest did his job, the king did his job. You didn't have priest kings. And suddenly you have a priest king forever. In the order of Melchizedek. Wait a minute, I thought Aaron, the brother of Moses, was the priest. Who's Melchizedek? What are we talking about here? Now, as far as Melchizedek goes, besides being a very interesting name, uh, if I could just kind of hit pause on Melchizedek, and in a couple weeks from now we'll get to that section in Hebrews, and then we'll hit play and we'll delve into what all that means. But just kind of put that on a pause. The point now is that God has appointed this person priest as well as king. It's, it's very strange. So who is this person? Who, who is this? And the early Christians saw this, and they said, Oh! We've met this person. We know this person. This is Jesus. And actually, what I, what I would guess really happened was after His resurrection, the Lord Jesus Himself said, look at Psalm 110, that's me. And then they said, oh, I get it. He is the one appointed by God. So go back to uh, Hebrews chapter 5 now. Jesus fulfills the first characteristic of being a high priest. He has been appointed by God. What does that mean for us practically? What does that mean in the 21st century in our lives here in the South Shore? Well, I think we find the application back in chapter 4, verse 14. If I could just do a reprise on last week's sermon. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, here's the application. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. People, we've got to hold on to Jesus. Because He's the one appointed by God. He's not just another wandering guru 
another uh, seller of spiritual ideas that you can take or leave, pick and choose. He's the one God has appointed who says, I'm here to be the high priest. So we've got to hold firmly to our faith in Jesus. The challenge comes when we come to those times in life where we actually do need a good oncologist. Or we actually do need a good headhunter or a good therapist for our child or a good whatever. And we do go through those trials of life. And that's when it's tempting to let go of Jesus. Because we start thinking, wait a minute, where's God in this? How can God let this happen to me? If God loves me, why is this happening? And, And that's when you really have to hold firm to your faith in Christ. Once we let go of that faith in Christ, then we're adrift. And, and there's a temptation to look for other, other avenues, other truths, other belief systems. Um, you know, I was thinking, I've talked about this before, but I was kind of reflecting on this whole uh, movement in our culture, what I would consider probably be the biggest religious movement in our culture today. And you might just call it spirituality. You know, everyone's, no one's religious anymore. Everyone's spiritual, right? Being religious is kind of passé. It's cool to be spiritual. You know, but what does being spiritual mean? Well, it kind of means whatever you want it to mean. It has all different manifestations. But at its core, the basic idea of spirituality is that there's all kinds of problems out there, but to change them and solve them, to solve these external problems, you need an internal solution. So you look within yourself to listen to your own voice, to hear the God within, to change your own reality, to have a positive outlook, you know, that's, that's the message of spirituality. There's an external problem that needs an internal solution. Friends, the gospel is 180 degrees opposite of that. Because the message of the gospel is we have an internal problem and we need an external solution. The high priest from on high. You know? And without that external solution, we're not going to solve this internal problem just by being more positive in our thinking. We need a high priest who can deal with our sin problem. And so hold on to Jesus. Whatever you're going through right now, I know some of you are going through different trials. I just want to encourage you, hold on to Jesus. There's nothing else to grab. Everything else is just sand. You know, Hold on to Jesus. Stay on the rock. Tie yourself to Christ. Lash yourself to the mast in the storm. Christ is the one who is God's high priest. But notice the second characteristic of Jesus He not only is appointed by God, but He also fulfills the other half of the high priest's job. He also came to identify with us and to stand in solidarity with us. Jesus is not just some sort of superhero from heaven who comes down and, you know, I'm here to fix everything. He he became a baby. He walked through this life. He knows everything that we go through in this life. He's walked in our shoes, so to speak. Look look at verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the One who could save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverent submission. Listen to that. Cries, tears, prayers. That's our life. God, save me. Help me. You know, He's gone through all the trials, the temptations, the struggles, the battles the disappointments, the betrayals. And He stayed faithful. That's the one difference. He stayed faithful where we haven't. Again, go back to verse 15 of chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet, here's the only difference, was without sin. He didn't cave where we do. So, 
you know, what's your temptation that you face on a regular basis? Or maybe you're facing right now. What What is it that you're struggling with? Anxiety, doubt, fear, you know, greed, lust, pride, ego, anger. You know, what is it? Isn't it amazing to think that the Lord Jesus in his humanity experienced all of those temptations? He knows what it's like to have those temptations just clawing at you and burning within you. And yet, he did not give in to those temptations. He did not sin. He is he's the faithful one. So he's sympathetic to us. You know, he, he can be the shock absorber. He can absorb the wrath of God. He does the things of God. But he's also sympathetic to us. He's gentle. He understands. He's gracious and compassionate. As it says again in verse 7, he was heard because of his reverent submission. Verse 8, although he was a son, you could translate that, although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, by the way, just a little side note. What does that mean there when it says once made perfect? Does that mean that Jesus used to sin, but then he suffered and figured out not to do it, and then he stopped sinning and became perfect? No. Okay. I mean, I think that's pretty clear. Again, verse 15 of chapter 4. He was tempted and like us in every way, just without sin. Or look at chapter 7. Flip over to chapter 7 real quick. Think about Jesus being made perfect. What does that mean? Look at verse 26, chapter 7. talking about Jesus, such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. So Jesus, it's not like He was used to be a sinner and then God worked with Him and He went through some stuff and He came out the other side and now He's fixed. He was made perfect. I think what it means is He was made perfect in the sense of this context here. He was made perfect as our priest. He's now the perfect priest. In other words, until He suffered... He couldn't have fulfilled the priestly role for us because the priest has to stand in solidarity with the people. In the context, what it's talking about is he's now perfected as the one who can be our high priest because he is not only appointed from God, but also stands in solidarity with us. And notice the third characteristic of the high priest. What is it? Offers sacrifice for sin. But look at the twist in this one. Chapter 7, verse 27. Here's the twist. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Instead, what did he do? He sacrificed it for their sins once for all when he offered what? Himself. Isn't that awesome? So he's not just the priest offering the sacrifice, but he's the sacrifice being offered. All of the pictures of the Old Testament people coalesce in Jesus. The whole Old Testament is just a big sign pointing to Christ. And when he comes, you see it all fulfilled in him. And so he's both the high priest who offers the sacrifice for sin, but he's also the spotless, pure, blameless Lamb of God without defect who can be a sacrifice once for all. Not some symbolic animal slaughtering that has to be done every day because actually the killing those animals doesn't remove sin. It's just a symbol. He's the pure Son of God who once for all has absorbed the judgment against sin that we deserve. So what does it mean for us? 
again, go back to chapter 4. Here's the application. Verse 16. The first application, again from last week, let us hold firm to our faith. Second application, verse 16, let us draw close. Verse 16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus understands. He can sympathize. He's given Himself. So go to Christ. There's nothing holding you back except yourself. The way has been cleared. You think when you go into His presence, He's going to go, ooh, what are you doing here? You know? Yeah, we've been watching you and no. You know? No. He sacrificed for sin. There's more grace in Jesus than there is sin in all of you put together. And throw me on top and there's still more grace. There's still more grace. His, his blood cleanses all unrighteousness. You know, I was thinking, I was just sitting here looking at how like the snow has fallen on the trees. I love this kind of wet, sticky snow where it covers every little branch. You guys see that? Like every twig. I was thinking if we all had spray paint cans and we went outside and tried to spray paint every tree, like we'd still miss some twigs. You know, but every little branch is covered. Christ's blood can cover every sin. Everyone, past, present, future, is perfect. He's the perfect sacrifice that God accepts. This isn't man-made religion. This is God-sent salvation, which is what we need. So Christ is that perfect sacrifice for sin. So go close to Him. It doesn't matter what your track record is. You may have a criminal record. You may just have a bad relationship record. You may have a bad parenting record. You may just have a bad record. It doesn't matter. Take it to Christ. Whoever you are, whatever you are, and come to Him because He is the sacrifice that's sufficient for you. And I even think this is for Christians too. In fact, this was written for Christians. It's not only just applies to the person who needs to come to Jesus and receive Him as their Lord and Savior, but this is for us as Christians. We have to continue to come to the high priest for grace and mercy. Again, look at verse 16 of chapter 4. Let us approach the throne of grace. Who's that talking to? Christians. It's not like, I'm a Christian now, so whoop, problems are done. I'm fine. Everything's great. I don't struggle. I don't doubt. I don't worry. Because I'm a Christian now. You know? <laughs> you know and, and I think we have to, as Christians, remember that we are saved by coming to the cross, but we continue to grow by just remaining there at the cross, depending upon the grace of God to us. We have to keep coming to Him saying, Lord, I'm still struggling. I need Your grace. And it says we can come confidently and ask for it because the way has been blown wide open through what Jesus has done for us. And I think we have to maintain that as a church. One of the dangers of church is that it can stop being a community of grace and become a community where, where, where we, don't, we don't live out this openness to come into God's presence with our, our needs. And that's not just an individual thing. I think that's something as a whole community. We have to be a place where we can be real with struggles, needs, wants. You know, we're, we're here in Hingham, and, and part of the Hingham vibe is like, I got it all together. Right? Right? It's, that's kind of the, the Cohasset, Hingham, Norwell, Hanover kind of thing. You know, I have money. I'm successful. It's all good. You fine? I'm fine. I'm great. You know? Am I right or am I right? If that comes into the church, 
what happens is we put an obstacle to the gospel. Because now people can't come in and say, I'm not all right, I need a Savior, because everyone's like, we're in Hingham, we're all right. Sometimes churches become very legalistic. They make up lots of rules, and it's all about you know, beating down people who break the rules. And, and people like, they, you know, that just kills kids. If, if some people grow up in a legalistic church, and then they're gone from Christianity because they never heard the gospel. The legalism and the rules got in the way of the gospel. Some churches become so... Have you ever been in churches that are like super spiritual? Like everyone tries to out-spiritual everyone else? You know? Like, oh, I, you know, oh, well, I heard from the Lord this, this. Really? Well, because I heard the Lord this and this. Well, woo, you know, you're really spiritual, you know? And Again, what's the message? Is that when you become a Christian, you're so spiritual and you're so much better than everyone else. All that does is as a church, it just puts a big wall to the gospel. So that we, can, we can't come as sinful people saying, I need the Savior. I need the grace. And so I would just plead to you and, and plead to myself that we would continue to strive to make South Shore Baptist Church, by God's grace, a community of grace where we can be honest about the fact that even as Christians, we still need mercy, grace, forgiveness, patience with one another and from the Lord. And if we ever do the plastic smile thing or if we ever do the legalism thing or the super spiritual thing, we're going to be cutting ourselves off and cutting others off from the cross. So, i got to wrap this up. Anyway. <laughs> I am praying that God will give you two Christmas presents this year. And I'm praying for them myself. Christmas present number one, I pray that God will give you self-awareness. That we will become aware in a fresh way of our deeper needs. That we will become aware of our sinfulness before God, even as Christians. Even those of us who have been Christians for 50 years, that we will see in a fresh light that we need Christ. And then the second gift I'm praying for us is that we will then see Christ in a fresh, deeper more profound way than we've ever seen Him. So, let me ask for those things now. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would give these two gifts to us as a church this year. Help us to see our brokenness and our need and help us to see Jesus. Help us, Lord, to see these two great truths that we are great sinners, but that You are a great Savior. Lord, blow away all of our pretension, self-righteousness. Blow away all of our trust in religion or wealth or education or pedigree. Lord, help us to see that we need You. And whether we've never come to faith in Christ or whether we've been following for 30 years, help us, Lord, to have a fresh experience this Christmas of Your grace in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to respond. Would you open up the celebration?